the first uh, Sunday of 2024, I thought it would be appropriate to think about priorities. Uh, When you think about priorities, I hope you begin thinking about what should I think about and how should I use my resources and my time to accomplish those things that are most important. And I'd like to add maybe a little bit of a framework to that this morning. Uh, And the first way I want you to think about your priorities is, have you ever thought about them in light of what will matter in a hundred years? I mean, think about what you do, what you put your time and efforts and finances towards, and ask yourself, in a hundred years, will this culminate to anything meaningful? I think if we begin thinking about our lives uh, in the concept of the 100-year rule, we can begin thinking, I I hope, at least on the way of thinking rightly about our life and about how we utilize everything that we have, the time that we have, our resources, our families, and and really our gifts and our talents to be able to say, I want to do something that matters. I I want to make it count. And I want to have these kind of priorities that after I'm gone, there is still going to be a a kind of a rolling account or a culmination of some decisions that I've made throughout my life that are still providing dividends, that that are still accumulating interest, so to speak, throughout at least the length of this world, but even into eternity. I mean, 100 years, you can say 1,000 years or 2,000 years. It's often hard for us to think uh, about time in that way because it's hard for us to imagine what 1,000 years is like. But at least think of what would it look like if you were to prioritize life considering what will be here 100 years from now because of how you prioritized your life. I mean, think about the decisions and commitments that would change if you funneled them through this commitment. I mean, there is a lot of things that you would probably stop doing immediately once you start thinking, well, if I do this, does it matter in 100 years? You're say, well, probably not. Well, you know, ask, does it matter that you do it? Now, I'm not saying about eating or, or drinking, because at the end of the day, yes, eating, is it going to matter in 100 years? Well, it depends on what you're doing after you eat, right? I mean, there are things I get that you're not, most of us, all of us, maybe except for the baby right there, that will not be here 100 years from now. None of us. So really the question is, what are you investing in right now that as it's being put forward will still be going around when you're gone? And that is how God asks us to think about our priorities. How are we investing? I mean, Paul even says this uh, to Timothy, like you need to entrust the teaching that I'm giving you uh, to men who will teach others also to do what? to teach others also. I mean, this idea and this concept of discipleship, it permeates the pages of Scripture. Uh, But if we read Scripture, we'll recognize that it's not just about discipleship. It's everything in your life is meant to make a difference uh, if we will prioritize it according to God's economy. The risk of not doing this, and it's really, I I hope, a linchpin of why this sermon is going to matter to you this year, is that if you will not live life according to God's economy, God's standards of priorities, you risk in a real way wasting your life. I hear too often of people saying, yeah, I just don't feel like I'm amounting to much or I'm doing much or I just don't feel like I know what God's will is or I feel like I've lived my life my life, and I just feel like at the end of the day, it's like, eh, you know, like if I wasn't here, it wouldn't have mattered much. 
And I'm afraid what, what they're really saying is, I didn't prioritize my life according to God's economy and according to God's priority list. And so now I'm sitting here uh, at, at this juncture in my life and I'm looking back and I say, I don't have much to look at. I don't have, I don't have much to point back at and say, look at what God has done. And I'm afraid that that's because a lot of our life has been spent doing less than God's will, doing less than God's priorities. And there's a multitude of reasons for that. But what I hope that we do as we jump into this sermon is this, and it's really the main point of the sermon, that we would begin our year with a renewed commitment to focus on eternal priorities. And it's going to be crucial to do that if we want to have a fruitful and fulfilling 2024. And you can put that up on the screen there, the point, the main point. There it is. There we go. This is our, our main point. This is what we're going to push towards through this sermon is asking ourselves, hey, we need a renewed commitment. It's 2024. People are talking about all of their New Year's resolutions that were seven days in and probably a lot of them have failed. But I hope this one doesn't fail because I know for a fact this is an unfailing principle. And it's not that this will actually ever fail. It's only the risk is that we would only fail to do it. And I want you, and I trust that I want everybody at our church to say, hey, this year, I'm going to, not perfectly, no one's preaching perfectionism here, and it's sad that in today's culture, we always have to look up and say, you can't be perfect. We all know we can't be perfect. Raise your hand if you know you can't be perfect in here. All right, but raise your hand if you know God still wants you to be excellent in all of your ways concerning him. Okay, good. All right, so we're on the right page. All right, you want to be purposeful. God wants you to be purposeful. He has a way for you to do it, and it means that we're going to maintain eternal priorities in 2024. So let's see how we're going to do that. First, what I want to do is I want you on your notes to write down the word priority. The word priority. There are three different a little bit just to get us on the right page, everybody on the same foundation about what the word priority means. The first one is the quality of being prior due to rank or superiority. And, and so when we think about priority, we have to say, hey, there's something qualitative about this. There's something in its value that causes it to precede or supersede everything else. So when I think about a priority, I have to say there's something about the quality, the qualitative nature, the ontological nature of this that makes it more important than this. Do you see that? So there's your first definition. Your second definition. Priority is a preferential rating that allocates rights to goods and services, usually in limited supply. I think there's a really wonderful working practical definition of a priority. In a simple phrase, it is that thing which I have to prefer and give it a preferential rating because I have to allocate goods and services that are usually limited, right? If there's anything that defines my life, it is the word limited, okay? I'm a very limited human being. And I think that if we can all say and agree and come to a realization that we're all very limited creatures here, that we would then recognize Well, I can't prioritize everything because I don't have that many resources. I'm a very limited human being. I have to recognize I have to prefer something over this if I'm going to be able to give this the attention that it needs. I mean, this is just really practical, simple concepts of saying, how do I make sure I give this what it needs? That means I have to prefer this over this. Because at the end of the day, every single person in this room has to allocate what they have to something they're doing. And then we have to ask, is that something that I'm doing worth the services and goods that I'm giving to it when I know for a fact it's a very limited amount of resources that I have? The third one, third priority, 
something given attention before competing alternatives. Now, if two is a working definition, I think three is just the practical reality that we find ourselves fighting in our lives, is that we find if we do not prioritize rightly, the things that are competing alternatives take our resources, they take our time, and they waste it on things that inevitably will not matter. And so we have to understand, if we think about a priority correctly, that it's something that, get, that is given attention before competing alternatives. Right? There's always going to be things that are nagging. Even in organizational leadership, there's always the, the tyranny of the urgent. Right? I, there's always going to be things that are on your mind. There's always going to be things that are on that to-do list that just at the end of the day aren't all that important. But you know what they're going to do? They're going to try to tell you that it's the most important thing. And priorities are meant to tell you that's not important. This is use the limited amount of things that you have for these short list of priorities that God calls us to submit to him and to utilize for your good and your benefit, but ultimately and more importantly, for his glory and for the advancement of the gospel. Now, you have a worldly definition of the word priority, but the Bible gives us a lot of data concerning priorities. A lot of data, a lot of scripture that teaches us that God not only expects you to prioritize things, God expects you to allocate services and limited supplies to certain things while not doing it with others. He expects that. He actually calls us to do it. From the book of Genesis all the way through Revelation, he tells us, here's some things that you need to say yes to and some things you need to say no to. And he says, here's some, a list of things you need to say yes to, but you need to say yes to them in a particular order. And I trust and I pray that's what we're going to look at, unfold a little bit of that this morning. But the first text I want you to jot down is Matthew 6, Matthew 6, 33. I think fundamental to the idea of priorities is Matthew 6, 33. It's a text that we've gone through in our exposition of the gospel of Matthew recently that we'll jump back into in just a couple of weeks. But, but here in verse 33, it says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So even at the start, we have Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, listen, I know that everyone has needs, but the first thing, right, first in preeminence, first in order, first in importance, is that you would seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now this gets really practical when you read the rest of that verse. And all these things will be added to you. Now if you know what the previous verses are talking about in this text. It's talking about this idea of being anxious, okay? And there is, there is no more of a priority killer than anxiousness. Anxious kills priorities because you're so anxious about things that you do the lesser things and not the greater things. And here in the text, we have Jesus saying, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about what you're going to wear. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, the shelter that you have over you. Don't be anxious about those kind of things, Right? That's, that's, a, that's an ask, isn't it? That's a big ask. That Don't be anxious about the very necessities of my life. But that is precisely what Jesus says. And he says, as a matter of fact, not only don't be anxious about these things, here's how both of these problems are going to be solved. You seek first the kingdom of God. That means God's rule. Right? When you think of the kingdom of God, what you're thinking is God's rule. So you're like, well, I don't know what the kingdom of God is. I don't even know what shape it is or where it's geographically located. Well, another theological conversation, but part of it's right here. I mean, this is an outpost of God's kingdom called the local church. But when you think of the kingdom of God, what you ought to think about fundamentally is God's rule. So you got to seek first God's rule. 
What does God say about blank? What does God say about priorities? What does God say about my life? Then submit yourself under the rule of God. And as we do that, as we seek first the rule of God and His righteousness, what does God require? What is God's expectations for me in this relationship? How I deal with my job, how I deal with my children, how I deal with my spouse, how I deal with my roommates, my friends. We're seeking His righteousness. And we're going to say, whatever His Word says, I'm going to do that according to His rule and reign. And here's the conclusion to that. All these things will be added to you. You're going to be taken care of in the fundamental necessities of life if you will first... Seek the rule and reign of God, and the way He says to do things you will say yes to. That is a a wonderful verse that teaches us that priorities matter to God. And if priorities matter to God, they ought to matter to us. And if we will take God at His word, He says, you prioritize the right things. I'm going to make sure that your life is taken care of in the measure of Christ's blessings toward His children. So much more to say, but at least what we can do Point number one on your outline is we need to at least start with this. You need to get your priorities straight. Anybody ever said that to you? My parents told me that quite a bit. Get your priorities straight. There are a lot more texts, and you can even later at your own, your own study, you can read Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. You can jot that down and go to that later. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, ample amount of biblical evidence of saying God says there are things you need to say yes to, things you need to say no to, and there's also a list of things that you need to say yes to, but in a particular order. And this is just the first one to say, hey, God says priorities matter. We need to allocate time based on the importance of things, and that we need to refuse to allocate time to other things that just aren't important at all. Here's something that priorities do, okay? Because I know the first objection that many people will say was priorities just make you rigid, you know? When I, when I if priorities, if you're saying this is when you got to do this, this is, you got to do this with this, and you, you got to order this, and you got to do all these right things in the right order, it just sounds really rigid. And I, I couldn't disagree more. Priorities don't make your life rigid, they make your life flexible where it matters and rigid where it needs to be. See, one of the problems is is people who will not live lives with priorities, the right priorities, they are actually the most inflexible people. They're the most rigid people because their lives are so scattered that in any given moment, they can't be flexible about anything that's important because in their world, they got so much going on and they can't figure out how to decipher what's most important right now. How can I say no to this to say yes to the things that are most important? And so they actually become very rigid because the very things that they ought to be doing, they must say no to. And they actually become much less fruitful in their life because instead of saying yes to the right things, they're saying no to the right things and yes to the wrong things. And their life just consequently becomes more and more and more rigid because they have no priorities in their life that keep them being flexible with the right things and inflexible with the things that they ought to be inflexible about. I mean, I just think about it. Even, even the father who, who works, which working is a wonderful thing, and he's got kids and he's got a wife, and, and at the end of the day, his wife and his children have needs, and he's got to go to work. Those are all yeses. You better do all of those, right? You better be a good husband, you better be a good father, and you better be an awesome worker. Okay, But being flexible means this, that my marriage may be struggling today, and at the end of the day... I may have to call in and say, hey, i got to prioritize my marriage today because it's the second most important relationship, the first earthly 
relationship that I have, and it supersedes work. And uh, really, the question is, well, you need to be prioritizing a lot of things if your marriage is making you stay home because your marriage isn't healthy. But that's the point, right? If you are at that place and you're like, well, at the end of the day, what's more important, going to work or staying home and reconciling with my spouse in which we exemplify the relationship between Christ and the church? My spouse. You see, and it allows me to be flexible to say, hey, honey, even, even if this is difficult, I understand that the most flexible, reasonable thing I can do is to cherish this relationship. It's a hard choice because you're going to be sacrificing other things like money, and finances, you get what I'm saying, right? You see the point. Like, even when it's hard decisions, priorities matter. Because in, instead, here's what we do, right? Here's the same situation, uh, but yet we have a husband who says, well, I got to go to work, so this is going to have to wait. My marriage has to wait because I have to go to work. But you see where we start, you see where this starts snowballing, right? Saying, I'm not going to prioritize the right things, and I'm going to end up with the wrong priorities. I'm going to end up with a life that is not fruitful for the Lord. Now, you, we could all argue, and I would argue right along with you, that, yeah, if you had to prioritize all the right things, you probably wouldn't have had to skip work that week to reconcile your marriage. But nevertheless, you got to do what you got to do when it comes to the priorities that you have. More to say on that. I know life seems easier when you don't prioritize. I get it. it when you look at something at face value, life seems easier when you don't prioritize. And here's why. Because if you don't have any priorities, everything is up for a yes. But you don't have to think difficultly, or difficultly, no. You don't have to think hard about much, do you? Because if you have no priorities, all you got to do is answer the thing that's in front of you. And that's at first glance a very easy thing to do, right? You, you, some, something comes up in front of you, somebody says, hey, do you want to hang out today? Yes. All right, then you're rocking over there, and maybe uh, your spouse says, hey, would you please come fix the car? Yes. Okay. All right, and you go, hey, your uh, boss says, hey, I need you to come into work today. Can you do that? Yeah. No. And they're like, well, okay, so now we have to think, work, wife needs you to come fix the car, friend wants to hang out. You've said yes to all of them. And now you got to figure out what to do. You see, the problem is, if we don't have priorities, and all we're left with is the decision right in front of us in that moment, we're going to find ourselves saying yes to things we should never say yes to, and saying no to things we should never say no to, and we don't have a consistent basis in which we make reasonable, rational responses that are glorifying to God. And most people live their lives in a consistent recapitulation of that process. And then we wonder, when we get to some place in our life, why is my life so messed up and confusing? It's because your priorities are messed up and confusing. We've got to make sure that we have the right priorities. You know who's a really good example of this? Esau. Why don't you flip open to Genesis 25 with me? Genesis 25. I mean, just think about Esau for a minute. I mean, he's the brother of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Right? Abraham is the one of the promise of God's blessing to inherit the land, the promised land. He was given this promise to say, you know, by your seed, right, that you'll have more descendants than the stars in the sky and the sea on the seashore. Like, that's the promise that God gave to Abraham. And he said, and kings will come for you. And ultimately, even before previous to that, through Genesis 3.15 and through the line of Seth, which was one of the children of Adam and Eve, Abraham come from Seth, and God had promised even to uh, Eve and, and Seth that the, the Christ is going to come through your line. And 
Esau is part of that line. Actually, he's the firstborn of that line. To him belong the promises. To him belongs not just the double inheritance of the firstborn, but to him belong the promise of the patriarchs that through his line, he would be the one to whom the Christ will come. He would be the one for whom kings come from. I mean, that was his heritage. That was his birthright, if you will. Now, with that being said, let's look at the text. Look with me, verse 29. Chapter 25, verse 29. Remember, we're talking about priorities here. And the reality is you got to know where Esau come from, who he is. Now, watch what happens. Once when Jacob, the brother of Esau, was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Now, now Jacob was a mama's boy. Okay, He cooked dinner and breakfast and lunch. Esau was a hunter. You know, he was a, he was a guy who went out there and he took game and he brought it in to his family. And uh, he come home from the field one day and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. And Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright now. Right, that's, that's a pretty hefty exchange, right? Some nasty stew for your birthright, your the patriarchal line of God's promise to where God will bring a multitude of nations from you and kings shall come for you and a bowl of stew. Okay, all right. Jacob said, sell me your birthright right now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Do you know what we have here? An emotional decision. Okay? And you know what one of the biggest killers of priorities are? Emotional decision-making. Right? At the end of the day, it's not only that he made emotional decisions, he counted his priority and his birthright as negligible con- con- uh, compared to his felt needs. Compared to his felt needs and whatever he wanted in the moment, he counted as far more significant than anything that his priorities pointed to, than anything that his life actually would amount to. He counted his feelings in the moment as far superior than the promises of God. It's a problem. And here's what ends up happening. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now that's the key to the text. What Esau did here is not some kind of amoral decision. He despised his birthright. He despised the very existence that God had given him. Instead of saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, we now say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you see this? So we're saying he forfeits his own design based upon his immediate emotional needs. Like He wasn't about to die. He was being dramatic. Now, ultimately, this isn't just about being dramatic. It's the fact that he just didn't care about priorities. Priorities didn't matter to him. What mattered to him is whatever he wanted in the moment, which is a problem that you see with Esau. Jacob had his own problems, but Esau gave up his priorities in view of his own personal desire in the moment, which is a problem that you and I have in our life. I wonder how much you and I give up because we make emotional, lazy decisions that cause us to forsake the things that matter the most. And I'm going to tell you, this is something that you're going to struggle with every single week. And you know this. I don't believe I have to convince you of this. You know this if you're being honest with yourself. You try to convince yourself because of the way you feel right now, because of the way you're thinking, that I would rather 
sleep in. I'd rather skip life group tonight just because I'm tired. It's cold outside. It's rainy outside. I would, I'm going to cancel my plans to go to dinner with this family or to go get coffee and do discipleship with these people because I just don't feel like it. And I'm saying, when did feel like it become God? And what we got to ask is, God, say, I don't care how I feel about this. I care about what God prioritizes. And we've got to care about what God prioritizes. I created a bit of a priority list and some subpoints there on your outline, and we'll go over them. Uh, there's some of you that are going to have a little bit of a different priority list, not because these priorities are subjective, but some of you don't have kids. Uh, some of you may have a roommate. Uh, some of you may have a roommate called a spouse. It's quite different than a roommate that isn't a spouse. It's because you're a single and you can't afford to live. And kudos to you for not moving back in mom and dad, but that's a whole other thing. All right. But fundamentally, this priority list is a very biblical, solid priority list of you saying, hey, I know what God wants me to do when it comes to my life. Uh, and so I'd like to, to help you think rightly about a priority list. Number one, sub point number one is God. Right? Obviously, God is the number one priority. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 38, we have Jesus saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So here you would say, what does God want for me first and foremost? Well, Jesus says, this is the great and the first commandment. So in the order, in the importance of what God's economy says, he says, I am number one, I am most important, and you shall then love me with everything you got. Here's one of the fundamental problems that we end up having is we say intellectually, I love God with everything I have, but we don't. Right? We, we want to say that we love God with everything we have, but how much time do you allocate to God? How much of our finances do we allocate to God? How much of our family vacations do we allocate to God? How much of our holidays that we take off work and go spend time with Him do we allocate towards focusing on God? I mean, so really... You would no more accept your spouse or your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend's uh, comment to you that they love you with everything they got if you love them like we say we love God, would you? Ultimately, what matters is if I say I love God, then that means I'm going to actually love God, a verb. It's a verb. It's something that we do. I'm going to allocate time. I'm going to allocate time based on the importance of this priority to God. And I'm going to love Him with all my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my mind. Like everything I have, He is the great and He's the first commandment. So I'm going to give my life to God. It doesn't mean you have to be a monk, right? This doesn't mean that you have to go practice monasticism out in the desert. That's not what it means. But what it does mean is whether you eat, whether you drink, everything that you do, you do it for the, that, the glory of God. That's how we do it, right? The glory of God. And so there is a way to do all the rest of these priorities while keeping God number one, while also spending time on other things. But there are way more ways to waste your time on other things and not prioritizing God while you're doing it. And that's the danger of our lives in 2024. The great and first commandment is God, and I'm going to give him everything I got. Number two, our spouse. If you're not married in here, you still need to put that, because whether or not that you're married right now or not, 
uh, particularly if you're young, you should be preparing for marriage. You should be thinking rightly about what marriage is. Maybe some of you who don't have a spouse, who don't have a spouse now, maybe your, your spouse has passed away, maybe, uh, maybe you never were married. Inevitably, we still have to recognize that in God's economy, since the beginning, spouses take a premier position in God's economy of priorities. I mean, we see it even as early as Genesis 2. Verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You want to think about the way God thinks about marriage? Like once you're married and God looks at you, he sees one. How important is your marriage in God's sight? He says, and I see you guys, I don't see you guys as free agents. I see you guys as one. I see you guys as together, one flesh, and we already saw a little bit of priorities there, didn't we? That God said, all right, you're married now. Guess what, guess what relationships aren't as important? I didn't say unimportant, but not as important. Mom and dad. Did you see that? God did that. A man shall leave his mother and father. Mom, dad, I love you, but you're not the most important thing in my life. My spouse is the most important thing in my life in our earthly, as an earthly relationship. Do you see that? God is full of priority lists. God is full of asking us to prioritize the right things. You want to see how important it, marriage is in God's economy for those that do get married? Ephesians 5 describes marriage as an earthly reflection and display of Christ's relationship with the church. You want to see how important is the marriage relationship, is the marriage covenant? That the Bible says that when people look at a husband... They should be able to, in the life of that husband's relationship with his wife, they should be able to read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Without even opening up the Bible, they should be able to say, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. Husbands, likewise, love your wives. Give yourself up for your wives. Love your wife like you love your own body, and be willing to give yourself up for her. I should be able to see in every marriage that prioritizes God's word, a husband that loves his wife the same way that Christ loved the church. And if I look at the wives... And if I look at godly wives, without opening up Ephesians 5, I should be able to look at that text and it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And just as the church submits to Christ, so wives, follow your husbands. What would it look like if all of the marriages at Compass Bible Church look like that? If we prioritize marriages the way that God prioritizes marriages, we would find ourselves in quite a different society and quite a different church. But make no bones about it, the spouse is the second priority. Everything else under that takes a back seat. It is the most important relationship. I can't wait until my son gets old enough for me to look him in the eyeballs and say, you are the least important person in this house. And he will then figure out real quick what it means for Christ to love the church and for the church to follow Christ. Thirdly, thinking about Titus, children. Children, they're very important. You know, you can't find a, a, you can't find a negative verse in the whole Bible that talks about children. Every single time the Bible talks about children, it's in the positive and the affirmative. How opposite is that than our culture right now? 
And, and I, I'm telling you, what we're saying here, the world is not going to tell you to do this. You're not going to go turn on Hulu and Netflix and Amazon Prime and find this priority list. You're going to find this priority list completely missing from our society and from our culture. So if you're looking at culture to tell me, how do I live my life? You're going to find a really warped and twisted priority list. Your children, number three, right? There's number three, your children. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. In Jewish literature, it's called the Shema. Right, it's that, that part of the Jewish literature that they would all have memorized and they would know. And this is how they based their life as they lived every day. And this is what it says concerning kids. The words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What are the words? The law of God. God's law. And here's what we're going to do with God's law. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk to your children when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, do you think about your children in the way that Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7 talks about your children? Are our children an asset? The way that Scripture teaches they are? A way to prepare the next generation to take the laws of God and run with them? Or do we see them as a liability? I can't do the things I used to want to do. I can't no, hang out with my friends anymore. Ah, I don't want to go to church because I'm going to have to figure out when well, my kids are going to get sick and then I'm going to have to be sitting at home for the next three weeks. I'm, are my kids an asset or a liability in my mind? And are they not, we can do take the other side of the spectrum, and they're not above my spouse and they're not above God. My spouses or my children are right where they need to be. Number three, no higher, no lower. They are a stewardship that God has given to me. As, um, as the poetic literature says in Scripture, they are arrows that I shoot out as an opportunity for them, as I've raised them in a godly house, to go out and make disciples and ultimately do things that are going to matter in a hundred years. But I'm going to tell you what, it is easy to wreck a home. It's easy to have a marriage that doesn't work. It's easy to have kids who do not love the Lord because your home did not love the Lord. And it's easy to look at your life and say, why am I here? And it's easy to go back and say, well, did we have our priorities in line? Number four, your church family. And I say family because I think it's important in our culture. When we say church, everyone thinks of a building, a steeple, uh, but we can't think about church that way. I mean, if you've gone through Exploring Compass, you understand that the church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which comes from two words, ek, which means out of, and, ca- and called is that word, uh, from, comes from the Greek word kaleo. And so it's for those who are called out. And you see it in the New Testament in a couple of different ways, church, assembly, congregation. So it's those who've been called out who are gathered together is really what the church is. And so when I think about my church, if my children who are my relation by blood, and my spouse who's relation to me by choice, and I have God who's number one, then I'd recognize all the children that God adopted are now also, in a real way, my family. And I have to treat them like family. And I must recognize that I'm going to be with them for eternity. And you look around at, you know, for all those who are saved in this room, you better get comfortable around each other, right? And if you got some petty little fights, you better get them figured out because you're going to be living together for eternity. You better be getting to know your eternal family real good because you're going to be with them forever. And they are the they're number four. And what I love about Scripture is it does something. While I'm talking, why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians 12? Scripture says something about the church family that makes it impossible for you to ever think that it would be okay for you not to 
be a part of a church, for you to at any point without severe rationale and biblical reasons separate from the church, or for you to say, I have a personal relationship with God and it doesn't mean that it's a personal faith. I don't have to attach it to any local church. You can't find scripture that's going to defend that view, but I can find a scripture that tells you that our relationship should be so close, we're as close as my thumb is to my finger. 1 Corinthians 12. If you're there, say amen. Good. If you're not there, that should make you feel convicted. No, I'm joking. I'm kidding. Sorry, we're going to start in verse 12. We're talking about the church family here. In the context, we're talking about spiritual gifts here, but nevertheless, spiritual gifts are only to be exercised in, scriptural, uh, in the scriptures in the context of the local body, therefore the mutual upbuilding of the church. Now, with that being said, here's what Paul says in Corinthians. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So everybody who is saved, you have been saved into one body. Now, we have a universal body, that is the... In church history, it's called the Catholic, capital C, not little lowercase c, right? Not the Roman Catholic Church, but Catholic, which just means universal, right? We're all born, we're all baptized into one body, but how is that body expressed visibly? The local church. Okay, so in the local church, then we are all to act in the way that Scripture says that we are one body. And so there is no me Christianity, there's only a we Christianity. That's the crazy thing. If you go home and read the Bible, anytime you read the word you in most of the New Testament and the Old Testament, apart from the book, the letter to Titus, perhaps, and Timothy, anytime you read the you, do you know what tense that's in? Tense. No, that's not right. What? Plural. There you go. Plural. It means y'all. When you read you in the New Testament, it's saying y'all. You can't say, you like that country, y'all? Okay. Y'all, it's not, it's not, when we read it, we are tempted, if we're not careful, to say, I, I, I. But the Bible never speaks of I, Christianity. It speaks of we. So when we think about now our responsibility to one another, we are to act as a body. Okay? I can no more separate my pinky from my hand than I can fly. And if I do it, it's, you know what it's called? It's the term dismemberment. Right? When we think about membership in the church, this isn't a go to LA Fitness or go to 24-hour fitness or go to the golf club down the street and sign a piece of paper. That's not what church membership is. In the Bible, it literally defines it. It's a body. We're a part of the same body. Right? My thumb, my finger, my brain, my eyes, it's all a part of the body. And we all function, although we're different parts of the body, we all function as the body. You can't imagine or anybody who would walk out of the church and say, well, I'm just not a part of this you know, body. Now, of course, you can go to other bodies. I'm just trying to explain to you the fact that even in a universal concept of the body of Christ, you can't go home and say, I'm having church by myself. You can't do that. They'd be like my eye saying, I'm going to go live on my own. You would say, good luck. And here's two problems with that. Number one, I would suffer because I don't have an eye. So on one hand, the church does suffer because they are functioning with less than everything they got. So you want to ask why you need to be a part of the body? Because without every Christian exercising the gifts that God has given them in the body, the body lacks. But what's far worse is the eye thinking it can go function without the body. Because that body may be maimed 
And that body may not be as effective as it was before, but the body can still go. The eye, apart from the body, can do nothing. And then we wonder why people who will not commit to a local church struggle so bad living for the Lord, finding purpose, finding community, having people who will meet their needs. The church is not just an addition to Christianity. It is the way that Christianity, the way that the the children of God function and display God's kingdom to the world. So much more to say. I can read the rest of it, but I, I gave you a summation of it. Jot that down. Go to that. You want to know what does it mean to be a member of a church? That's what it means. Number four, work. We live in the culture, work's a bad word. We're actually trying to figure out how to work less in our culture. But the problem with that is you need to say, before I start taking on culture and doing whatever they want me to do, what does the Bible say about work? Well, it's a good reminder to understand that work was a pre-fall command. So before the fall, before sin entered the world, God had told Adam and Eve to go work the garden, to go and rule and subdue the earth. I mean, that was a command given to Adam in the garden. So if you wonder, what does God think about work? I mean, it must have, I mean, some of us think about work like this, like, man, like this is so evil. God must have been real mad that he made me work. It's like, it is not, that is not God's design for work. God designed you to work. Now, he did say because of the fall that your work would produce thorns and thistles, which if you don't know what those are and you're from the country like me, they're weeds that look nice, but they're prickly and they're not nice. They're fruitless. They're, they're futile. They don't do anything good. Okay, your life is going to produce thorns and thistles when you work. Nevertheless, God has called you to work and produce and provide and to rule and subdue the earth that he has put under your feet. He's called you to do that. And he's given us a way to do that. And the wonderful thing about work is God used it as a means for you to take care of your other priorities. And so we can't sit and look at work as the worst thing on earth. We must look at work as a wonderful opportunity for God to utilize us for his kingdom purposes and as a practical means for God to take care of our family and to take care of our needs. Work is a blessing and a wonderful thing from God. And if you do not like work, I will promise you, you are not going to like eternity. We will all be working in the new kingdom. You can write that down and pray on that a little bit. All right. I have five, I have five blanks. You, you could put six. And I, I, you put six um, because the last one here I have is you. You. And I know between work and, and you, there's probably other things, right? Your neighbors, I get it, right? Your neighbors, right? Love your neighbor. Uh, maybe uh, you have roommates that you're not married to. Obviously, they're not like your spouse, so you couldn't put them at number two. There, there are other things. And really, in between work and me, you can put everything else. Everything else. Right? Everything else goes before you. Right? You want to say, well, do I, where do I put my neighbor? Before you. Right? Before you. Where do you put everything else? Before you, you are the last thing on your list, but you are on there, you, but you're last. Here's the biggest fundamental problem in our culture and Christianity today. We put ourselves first. In our relationship with God, we make Christianity the I faith. It's about I, 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 I. God so loved me. God loves me. God wants me. It's like, God loved the world. I mean, did you forget that? Did you forget that word there? The, the God didn't love you. You are part of the creation, so there is a way in which God loves you. And even as his children, there's a way God loves you specifically. But you've got to be really careful not to make everything about you. 
Right? I mean, it's like your child, it's like, you, you, raise your hand if you have children in here, because I can look at you in the eyeballs, okay? I mean, it'd be like one of your children walking around saying, my parents love me. And then going to your other kids, right? And then going to your other kids and saying, mm, my mom and dad love me. And you're like, I think they got the wrong idea. Like, he's like, they're right, right? They're right, but I think they're also wrong, right? I mean, they're going to the other kids like, I don't love them. And it's like, and you would just go to them and say, you're right, but let's adjust this a little bit, right? I do love you, but it's not about you, right? I mean, that's what you would say to your kids, I hope, right? Let this be an opportunity to say, God does love you, but this is not about you. I mean, your salvation ultimately is about him. It's about him getting glory that he would take people that were dead and bring them to life and then take them and put them with him for eternity. He says a lot more about God than it does us. We didn't do anything. And God's the one who did it, but our sin is now basically going to be living with all the people that were his enemies before, that he's now made their friends. I mean, salvation is just not about you. And your faith is just not about you. Now, you have a part to play in it, but fundamentally, Christianity is about God. Faith is about God. There are other things that should go before you, but for the sake of this outline, and for the sake of not bogging you down with every single thing and how to apply your roommate or your neighbors, I just want to put you as last and just understand, you're last. And that's a good place to be. Mark 9.35. Did I give you a verse for work? Somebody tell me. No. Ecclesiastes 9.10. Ecclesiastes. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Right? Work hard. There's a lot of work verses in the Bible, but that's another one for you. Mark 9.35 on me, right? Jesus sat down and he called the 12 disciples and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and slave of all. So you want to be, you want to be in the right place in God's economy. Right? You want to be that which God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You got to be the slave of everyone else. Everyone else gets your first and your best. You get the last. Now, for those who, who grew up in a culture, maybe out there, who have been told about self-care, self-love, got to do all these things. Like here, listen, listen to the evil of that concept in that culture. Look at me. Can I tell you something wrong about self-love and self-care? The world tells you first take care of yourself. Make sure you put yourself first and then so you can take care of other people. That is just not biblical Christianity because biblical Christianity is, is set upon the foundation of you will care for your neighbor and your neighbor will care for you. You will care for your spouse and your spouse will care for you. You will prioritize God and God will take care of you. You will take care of your children and someday when you get old and you can't get dressed, they're going to take care of you. You hear me? That's biblical Christianity. That is the way God had created it. But in this culture, we got to say, I've got to take care of me first. The problem with the me first movement is this, okay? When you get so far down the line, and you're 20 years down the road, and here's what I hear all the time. Nobody calls me. Nobody takes care of me. Nobody shows up for me. It's like, when did you show up for the priority list that God told you? When you put God first, and you put your spouse first, and you put second, you put your kids third, and you put your church family fourth, and you put your work fifth, and you put everyone else sixth, and you put yourself last. Because I'm going to tell you, those people, people show up for them. Because they did things the way God's word tells them to do it. And I can't preach this hard enough to you. You have got to love People, the way that God's priorities tell you, if you ever want to feel that care and love that you so deeply long for, because you cannot both take care of yourself and then expect everyone else to take care of you. And I love you. 
and I want you to know what God's word says and the best that he has for you is that you would pour yourself out for others. And you know good and well that the way the church works is they'd pour themselves out for you. Come on. All right. I gave you a handout this morning. It's, it's a, in addition to what you have. I'd like you to pull it out. Uh, this is called a personal action plan. Now, what this is going to help you do, it's going to take a number of these subpoints, not all of them, but it's going to take a number of these subpoints, and it's going to help you get a practical way this year to begin codifying and begin writing down, hey, how can I prioritize what God wants me to prioritize? So what I'd love for you to do is take this, Fill this out maybe by yourself. Maybe if you have a whole family here, do a family devotional where you fill this out together. Where you guys think seriously about things that God wants you to prioritize. And I want you to write them down. Right? I don't want this back. Your life group leaders don't want this back. But fill this out along with your application questions and be ready to talk about it in your life group. I think this will be a wonderful, helpful resource for you to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to say this year, I'm not just going to do whatever, whenever. I know there's two church services, but I'm going to commit to one. Right, which would be helpful because as our church grows, we kind of know who's going to go to what service. But that's a whole other conversation, right? You doing priorities actually helps other people prioritize too. That's a whole other sermon we'll talk about someday. But for you, just take this, write it down, fill it out, and be ready to discuss it with your life group. And I trust that this would be a helpful tool for you to work through your priorities in 2024. All right, we have priorities, which up to this point in the sermon, I think most of us would say we all have priorities. We can say, well, my problem isn't necessarily priorities, it's doing them, you know? It's like getting them done the right way. And Scripture speaks to that, right? The, the idea that we do have priorities, we call them stewardships, and they're stewardships given by God for us to steward for Him. And we have this job, and we understand these priority lists isn't my priority list that I just made up in my office, this is a biblical priority list that comes from the Bible. And so I know this is what God's Word tells me to do in my life. So I'm going to say, i got to do this in one way, excellently. i gotta, I got to make sure I don't just balk on my responsibility to say, God's given me a role. I need to go fulfill that role. And so we got to be excellent in our job, in our roles here. Now, this is problematic, too, because we live in a culture that wants to do less. Have you, have you noticed that? Like, we live in a culture... That tries to teach you how to work less hours, how to work less days, how to retire early, right? I mean, retire at 40, that's something I've been hearing a lot lately, right? And I'm like, what are you going to do for the next 30 years? All right, get in trouble, okay, right? We live in a culture that is motivated to do less. Now, don't get me wrong, there are times, listen to me, there are times, maybe you're committed to things probably that you shouldn't be committed to. By all means, pastoral approval to say, drop it, okay? But you shouldn't be dropping things just because you want to do less. You were meant to work hard. Like, you were meant to do things that are difficult for long hours, right? That's why so many of us, our backs hurt. It's because we sit down all the time. Your back would not hurt if you stood up more. That's, you know that to be true, Okay? If you worked more, you would hurt less, believe it or not. Okay, that being said, we live in a culture that doesn't want to work. This has even crept in in the church, and we put a religious flavor on it. Like this idea that, well, you know, I, don't, I can't work my way to God. It's like, yeah, you can't work your way to God. Right? That's what the unmerited favor of God is. It's called grace. And they're like, yeah, that's grace. That's great. I don't, I don't have to do these things because of grace. I'm like, you have manipulated and usurped the power of grace to make it fit why you are going to be lazy and unmotivated to do what God's Word wants you to do. 
The problem is, is that grace is a beautiful thing. The, the unmerited favor of God towards dead sinners, enemies of God, and he would take them and he would bring them to himself. And he would say, you're going to be my child based upon my unmerited favor on you and nothing else. And then we are then God's children and we relate to God as his children and now we work for God. So as we work for God to do God's will, grace now takes on another tone. Grace doesn't mean I work less. Grace means I can work my tail off, and when I do fail, guess what I rely on? Grace, the unmerited favor of God. See, God's grace does not tell me to work less. God's grace says that I can work hard for the Lord, and even when I don't measure up and I don't hit the mark, He is still going to love me. But grace is not an excuse for you to be lazy. It is not an excuse for you to do less in the name of God. Let grace be what grace really is so grace can truly be grace. We need to get about the work of the Lord. That's point number two. Simple. But point number two is get after it. Just get after it. You got priorities this year? Get after it. I think somebody needs to tell you that. Somebody needs to tell me that. Just get after it. There's going to be a lot of reasons why you get up every day and say, I'm too tired. It's too cold outside. It's raining. I don't want to do it. <clears throat> They'll be here tomorrow. All right? They'll be here tomorrow. I can do this some other time. Stop and get after it. I mean, Scripture talks so much about this. Romans 12, 11 is a really good example of the nature in which you ought to get after it. Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful, right? If you, could, if you could give a sloth one description, what would it be? I was going to say lazy, but yeah, you say sloth. That's fine too. Slow, lazy, lazy. Slow and lazy. I'll, I'll give you that. Slow and lazy. Don't be slothful. Don't be slow. Don't be lazy. Don't be, don't be slothful in zeal. Like zeal, you ever said a zealous person? A zealous person is ready to get going. Zealous people sometimes run a little bit too fast sometimes, don't they? That's why you call them zealous. But this is what Scripture says. Go be zealous. Don't be lazy. Don't be slow. Be zealous. Be fervent. That's a Greek word. It means motivated. Be excited. You need to be excited in, in, in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. That's the, that's the way. That's the description in which God says, here's how you go accomplish the priorities God has given you this year. Get motivated. Get excited. Have some zeal. And get in there and get it done. That's a wonderful It's a wonderful description of how God views our responsibilities and our stewardships. One more verse for you, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. In light of the resurrection, that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're saying, okay, here's how we live in light of the resurrection. Therefore, my brothers, verse 58, be steadfast, be immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You want to know why priorities matter? Because the resurrection is true. We're going to be resurrected eternal life. That means everything that we're doing in this life is going to be, according to God's will, from His priorities, is going to be meaningful and profitable. And because I know that I too, like Christ, and you too, if you're saved, like Christ, will be resurrected, then we know that the work we're doing here, according to God's word, is not in vain. You go out there, you get after it, and your work is not in vain. You got to get up early, not in vain. Right? You're struggling, not in vain. You're going to raise those kiddos to love the Lord, not in vain. You're going to go reconcile your marriage and work hard over the next six months, 12 months to figure out how to get this marriage right on the right track in the Lord, not in vain. 
because it's all meaningful in line of obedience to the Lord. And what you need to do is go get after it. You know the right thing to do. Get after it, empowered by the Holy Spirit, go. There are three things, though, three subpoints that you need to do if you're going to get after it in the right way, in a biblical way. First thing you got to do is get over yourself. That's hard, isn't it? That sounded kind of mean, didn't it? Get over yourself. I tell myself this quite a bit. Do you recognize when it comes to the battle with priorities, you're your first hurdle? Like you are literally your first hurdle. And so when I mean get over yourself, I mean it literally. Like you got to jump over yourself. Like you, you can't prioritize things and be all in yourself. You just can't do it. Because by definition, you're going to be about you. And you're not going to be able to be about the priorities if you're about you. I mean, I, I, I could preach this for hours to your chagrin. Please read to me the apostles. Read to me Jesus. Read to me faithful people through church history. Talk to me about faithful people that you know. They were never wound up in themselves. They were always about the work of the Lord, abounding in the work of the Lord, and abounding in faithfulness toward other people for the glory of God. That's how you, that's how you would describe them, wouldn't it? And the, and the thing that you never had to look at them and say or never had to think about them is they had a hard time getting over themselves. But one of the biggest problems in saying yes to God and, and doing the things that he's called you to do is we just aren't willing to get over ourselves. We have a me-centered Christianity here. It's about me. If we will take Christianity and make it about what it really is about, about God, and we'll find ourselves thinking rightly about priorities. The second thing, you're going to get, get over yourself. You need to make it about who it should be about. You need to make it about God. Which, when we're going to make it about God, you know that's how God likes it. Do you know God is the only being in eternity that can make things about himself and not be sinning? Did you ever think about that? God, by his very nature, because he's ultimate, God in his very nature is number one. And so the greatest good that God could ever do is make everything about himself. Do you ever think about that? The greatest thing that God could ever do is make every single thing about him because he is the most prominent, important, preeminent being in existence, ever. And so for God to make anything, to make everything about anything other than Him would be to diminish and cause people to sin. Because Him, to, get, to make you focus on anything less than Him would be idolatry. And God can't cause you to sin. God can't cause you to commit idolatry. So therefore, the greatest thing, the most just thing, the most holy thing, the most good thing that God can ever do is make you look at Him and make you think about Him and everything that you do would be about Him and for Him. It's the greatest justice that could ever be done is to make it about God. And the greatest thing that God ever did is said, everything you do needs to be about me because I'm preeminent. I am the most important. Now, that's important because we need to make it about God because that's the way God likes it. And as a matter of fact, not only the way He likes it, that is the most just, holy thing God could do. And you know this to be true, too. I mean, Psalm 23, you love that psalm, don't you? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green patches. You, you know that verse, right? But, but read verse 3. He restores my soul, and He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Why does he care for you? For his name's sake. This, people are like, no, it's about me. You're going to have a hard time quoting this verse when it's about you, right? He is caring for his people for his name's sake. He saves people for his name's sake. 
I'll give you another one. Ezekiel 36, because I see some people looking at me. Do another one. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this says God. It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness. We'll say, well, God saved Israel. God always brought Israel out of harm and brought them out of their sin and into safety. For what reason? For Him. The greatest thing you can ever do is make it about Him. Thirdly, you want to get after it, you need to go with the go-getters. Right? You need to go with the go-getters. You need to run with the runners. I've heard it said, and I don't know if it's true, but it may be, that you're like, the, you're like the 10 people you spend the most time around. That can be scary, isn't it? The 10 people you look around, that's who you're most like. And if you want to be somebody who prioritizes God's things and somebody who gets after it, I hope and I trust that you're around people who get after it. If you're around people who prioritize God's things because you can't help but emulate the people that you're spending the most time around. Parents, that's why you want your kids to hang out with the good kids, isn't it? You don't want them to hang out with, with, with Jim down the street who throws rocks at windows because you say, I don't want my kid to be like that. Ultimately, you're going to be like the people that you spend life around. And if you want to be a kind of person who gets after it for the Lord, you better find yourself in the company of people who get after it for the Lord. One more verse, and then I'll close. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. This is a, a verse that we've come really accustomed to since COVID, but it tells us the way that we ought to think about running with the runners, going with the go-getters. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word stir up comes from the Greek word to provoke, to prod. I love that. Isn't that fun? Don't you love poking people? Did you know you could poke people for the Lord? Like It's a, it's a biblical concept for you and me to say, we can say, you need to go love and do good works. How are you going to do some love today? How are you going to do good works today? How are you going to go fulfill the Lord's will today? How are you going to go prioritize the right things for the Lord today? You can do that biblically. And that's a wonderful gift from God that we exist to, to, to provoke one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. You know the worst way or the easiest way that you can stop being, stop doing God's priorities and you can stop getting after it by neglecting to meet together. There's nothing that makes you slower in spiritual matters than meeting less with your church family, as is the habit of some here. But we're going to encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we see the day of Christ coming, we're going to meet together more, we're going to encourage one another more, and we're going to stir each other up to get after it and to get our priorities straight. So I pray that we would start this year and every year by doing the right things, the right way, with the right people. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, my sincere prayer is that uh, this sermon would be effective in whatever measure that you have desired and that you in your sovereign providence would, uh, would provide for this church, that we would understand that, that we can work hard and it is a godly thing as long as we work hard for the right things. And God, I pray that as we think about our priorities this year, as we think about eternal priorities, things that will matter in 100 years and 1,000 years, I pray that, uh, God, this week of this year and for the rest of the history of this church, we'd be a, 
we would be a kind of people who would have a, the right kind of priority list and that we would treat it right and that we would work hard and diligently after it. And that God, you would be glorified ultimately and that you would use this church family as a means for wonderful gospel advancement, for great discipleship. And uh, God, that we, uh, through our obedience to you, would make everything about you. And in that, God, that we would point people to you. We thank you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.